did you know that MIT's Human Dynamics Center found that conversations outside of formal meetings are the most important factor that contributes to team success? That's why we built WorkTrip to supercharge team culture and exceptional performance through off-site working design. If you're looking to take your team on an off-site this year, go to worktrip.com and check out our team-specific listings, including venues, experiences, executive coaches, facilitators and speakers. Our vision is to help all teams from high-growth startups to well-established corporates to get together, enjoy work and be productive. We scale those aha moments which unlock great things. listeners how is it going welcome to the edtech podcast have you managed to prize yourselves away from chat gpt or are you still as fascinated as ever how are you finding our series collaboration with educate ventures get in touch and let us know in this episode we throw back to the earlier days of edtech and reflect on how edtech is evolving and who it is serving Chatting to Gary Pratt made me ruminate on this quote from Tech UK's recent Predictions for Technology in 2023 article, where an investment director at Target Global mentioned this. We'll continue to see the rise of the hybrid model in edtech. Just as the place of work has evolved from the office to remote to a combination of the two since 2020, edtech startups will have to grapple with a new model. This will entail corporate and consumer edtechs having to retain the scalability and efficiency of online with the engagement of offline. This way of thinking is pretty central to my other work with WorkTrip, where we aim to help create a world which best supports this offline-online mode of learning within the workplace. And, dear listeners, thank you for being patient with me on the podcast. Because of your kind generosity on this front, we now have a platform up and running, four angel investors and lots of lovely customer briefs. But fear not, dear listeners, I hear you out there and I hope to bring you lots of lovely content too across 2023. So let's get to this chat with Gary Pratt and big shout out to any US listeners. You'll be pleased to know Gary has just celebrated his US book launch, so you can now also get your hands on this great read from a fellow Brit. Enjoy. I'm very excited. It's finally blue sky outside after lots of rain this January. And uh, this week on the EdTech podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by author and founder Gary Pratt. So welcome, Gary. Thanks, Sophie. Very pleased to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you today about EdTech, entrepreneurialism and outdoor thinking. And these are three things that I'm very interested in. So let's jump straight in. First up, Gary, across your career, you've co-founded everything from a sensor tech company to a chain of cook shops to an early ed tech company called Teach It. So I've got here, when did you realise you had an entrepreneurial streak or that you enjoyed problem solving? Uh, Good question. I'm not sure I ever realised I had an entrepreneurial streak. I think I realised I didn't particularly like working for other people is probably... (laughs) 
the key thing. So I did have what I term proper jobs in my 20s. And that was exciting. It was in a early sort of pre-dot-com tech in the US and here. So it was all, it was all very exciting in the sense of fast growth acquisitions. So, so the other answer, I guess, is that that was very entrepreneurial. So all my jobs have been for very entrepreneurial people. My first proper job from uni was uh, Chris Anderson, you know, now famous for TED, but back then famous for future publishing. So, yeah, in one sense, um, was never that good at working for other people. But on the other side, I guess the luck of having worked for very entrepreneurial people and companies, you know, from my days at uni, I guess, straight in. So, yeah, maybe a mix of the two of those. Yeah, I love that. I can relate. So um, thinking about future publishing, worked in events, and it wasn't until like 10 years later that I looked back and thought, well, that process is understanding, you know, whether there's appetite for a new product, basically making it from scratch, researching a market and and those kind of things. So um, yeah, really, really love that. Um, Digging into your edtech business of 20 years ago, um, mm-hmm. Teach It, can you tell us a little bit about why you set up Teach It and how you got into that as well? Yes. So um, I was running a chain of cookshops, as you alluded to then, which I set up with a, an old uni mate as a very, very left field sort of turn out of tech world. To, oh, let's set up some shops. And um <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you know, that was going on. And um, but at the same time, um, my wife, Siobhan, was an English teacher. And I guess a perfect storm of us always having tech at home from an early stage because of my background in computing. Her starting out teaching um, and making all of her resources electronically in the days when most teachers still made them by hand and or there was probably even still bander machines in some you know department offices so i think that that sort of came together in it actually came together on the thai beach that's a sort of different story but but it's something about being outside in a way and thinking differently i guess that um, we literally made a decision just to well let's just publish them on the web and and see if any other teachers are doing this so it was teacher was set up with no business plan but in the very early, you know, this is 1999, so you know the wild west of the internet. Um, and in retrospect, people didn't, you know, it's, it's well before most people were sharing anything for free on the web. You know, it was a place for companies to have websites, and that's it, really. Um, so through luck, I guess, we just stuck all of Siobhan's materials of his English teaching stuck sort of 400 pages of English materials on the web and said, um, you can have these, um, you know, for your, for your English teaching and, and got people to register and give us their email addresses. And so we did that and Siobhan was still teaching and wind the clock forward about a year. And we were, I can't remember exact figures, but in terms of numbers but i do the, the the seminal point came when our hosting company asked us to leave because we were using up all of their bandwidth um which is sort of strange these days um but basically english teachers from around the country were registering all of them and getting our stuff so it still wasn't a business but it was i guess that classic need we'd proven a need that teachers wanted new ideas of how to teach Macbeth or whatever in the classroom and liked Siobhan's stuff. And a small merry band of contributors has started saying, yeah, you can have mine too. And um, Siobhan 
probably being an English teacher, edited them all so they all looked beautiful. Um, so that that was the bones of teacher. But the, then the the change came when it was costing us money basically to you know host it, to look after it. So Siobhan had left teaching, but it made no money. So I left the shops, and um, in another, I guess, more common way than now than then, we basically asked the twenty uh, odd thousands of registered users what they'd pay for. And they all said, we want to be able to edit them because these are all PDFs. So, you know, Teacher as a Business was born by just, you know, making editable versions of teaching resources available. So that was that was where it came from. And it and it um, and it grew really quickly from there. But I think, you know, people often ask, how did you do that? And we, we used to joke that, you know, we didn't spend a penny on marketing. We didn't. But I. I yeah, you know, if I'm being honest, I think that's because 1999, 2000 was a very different place that you could get on the first page of Google. I'm, I'm not saying totally easily; you had to be doing something good, but you know, the the barrier to entry was, you know, much much lower. <laughs> so we sort of had a business appear by accident, almost. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just fascinated by this whole um you know your cookshop business and this uh yeah nascent idea and and also how it relates and we'll come back to this later but you know the kernel of that idea being generated in a in a in a, in a different environment so we'll definitely come back to that. Um Yes. So just sticking with edtech for a little bit longer. Mm. Um mm. I suppose that was 1999. Um yeah. what what evolutions do you think the edtech world has gone through over the past uh years since that point and sort of what most excites you these days if you're ever sort of dipping into that space? Yeah, well I sort of dip in a bit less uh, but I guess I've been involved in because of teacher and then with lots of other sort of brands in that space over that time. Um, you know, it was a rapid time of change in the early nineties and that's not just in ed tech, I guess that was just tech. So, you know, we were absolutely at the forefront of teacher in terms of when interactive whiteboards went into classrooms and the first to make flash sort of activities for interactive whiteboards. So, you know, in one sense, as an ed tech, any startup, you've got to be always innovating, yes? And I think we were very good at just you know, a mixture of research, feedback, gut is just always changing what we were doing. But I also think that's the nature of, you know, education in one way never changes, does it? But I think, you know, the desire for teachers especially to want to be good at what they do experiment do things in interesting ways doesn't go away so anyone addressing that i always find exciting um another one i was at uh after we'd sold teacher i um i was at a publishers association event giving a speech and um i'm not gonna name any names but it was um so this is 2013 maybe and person on in front of me was from a big big tech and his his presentation was basically content is dead. Um, you know, it's all about the tech, the platform. And um, my first slide said content is king. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I sort of believe that, you know, I think teachers, what I'm drawn to is the role of teachers and good content, regardless of the tech. And I always get a bit dismayed where they think that, the technology platform is actually the answer. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying those companies don't make a boatload of money, 
Um, but I don't really think that's ed tech. It's not actually being educational. And um, yeah, that's sort of my line. Yeah, the, the things that interest me when they're actually there's some pedagogy, there's something interesting that actually drives education as opposed to just tech. You still active as the chairman of, of Kindly? Yeah, so I met I met Garant, the founder of Kindly, through my work at the University of Bath, post sort of selling Teachit, doing some advice because it, you know, when te- it came to it, Teachit was a SaaS business in you know, tech, and and Kindly is similarly in the nursery space. So we sort of absolutely hit it off, and um, you know, their ethos and aims to help people in their early years space be better at their job, have a new bit of an easier life, and centered on you know the progress of children you know really appealed to me but back to the point I was maybe teacher you know it also made me reflect that it's a much tougher world to navigate now than it was you know 20 odd years ago um to get traction and to grow is much tougher I'm intrigued as well whether when you set out in 1999 albeit perhaps (laughs) by mistake almost um when when you look at that period of time are you surprised by how far edtech has come or are you kind of you know slightly more hungry wishing that more had been done what what's the kind of what what would your interpretation of it be that's a good question isn't it um i i think i'm a big fan of the slightly more international view which has definitely come and kindly definitely navigates that space where you can draw on a much bigger pool of knowledge, expertise, content. So I think that's a real positive that's happened. And that's not just, again, ed tech. I guess that's just the nature of sort of globalization and and things. Um, so that's been a real positive. Um, I still come back to that point about, you know, I'd like a better definition of what is education technology, especially when it comes to the world of um, investment and things like that, because I'm not sure a lot of it is actually educating um so i'm not sure that's that's changed much in that time (laughs) um but i I think the the really interesting i've got three kids now they're all going through education and or having you know in it and you know i'm I'm a fan of new technologies in the broadest sense so you know the you know like in all aspects of our life the the places you can get educated has increased enormously and that's got to be positive on one front but you know teacher was absolutely founded on the basis that central to education are teachers and educators and yeah that makes it much more complex for them to navigate i think so yeah any any ed tech that still champions the role of teachers and educators i think is you know a really sweet spot for me so moving on slightly Recently, you published The Creativity Factor, Using the Power of the Outdoors to Spark Successful Innovation. Um, So I've read the book. I've already bought it for two other people. So totally sold and really enjoyed it and loved it. So for our listeners who have not yet had that privilege, um, what's the central argument in this book that you basically put forward? Okay, so the central argument is that you know, to be innovative is to be creative and you know creativity is not the preserve of you know graduates from art school you know creativity is central to 
you know, increasing innovation to new ideas. So can't have those without fueling our creative juices. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be creating art, you know, you know, all successful ventures are founded on having good ideas, putting aside the whole putting them into action. Let's let's ignore that, that bit of it. But, you know, if you don't have good ideas and you don't manage to generate other ways of seeing the world, you know, you're not going to create real innovation. So if you start with that point, and then you start to question, how can you generate creativity? And this is exactly what I was doing as I started a PhD and started researching, you know, entrepreneurship and creativity. And you seem to come to realize, and there's plenty of science around, but most of the ways that we've thought that we should do that are a bit broken. There's a whole section in my book about brainstorming being dead and it's, it's nothing new that I found out. And, and some of the research that brainstorming doesn't work goes back, you know, 20 or 30 years. But we still lock ourselves in rooms and hope to have, you know, blue sky thinking time. So the sort of business practices that apparently center on creativity are all a bit flawed. And that's not knocking all of them. You know, I'm quite a fan of Lego and Lego serious play, but um, we sort of wheel it out once a year or some companies do on a workshop. So the next bit is, well, we should continually try to be creative and come up with new ideas, be central to work. It's actually that thinking is work. It's not just having to sit at a computer and be productive. So I started researching that, and then you come to, well, how do you, you know, what makes you creative? Well, you've got to get your brain in what's called this default state. Yeah, that's where ideas emerge and happen. And it's really interesting space, you know, that it doesn't happen by resting and doing nothing. It happens, there's a fantastic research paper called Inspired by Distraction by some American academics. And um, you have to be doing something. And it just happens that walking is a very, there's a shortcut to getting your brain into default mode. Just literally walking gets your brain as default and you accelerate that if you do that outside in nature away from the square rooms boxes of our, our world and away from our tech um and plenty of science in the book explains how that happens and you start to go well why is that and actually there's some nice deep-rooted evolutionary reasons you know we are you know cognitively enhanced sort of athletes really as human beings that are designed to navigate complex landscapes hunting hunting, gathering, not getting eaten by beasties or attacked by other people. So the same bit of your brain, which, you know, is centered on creativity is actually the bit which we use for navigation. So all these bits of research came together and I had that aha moment. I've always done this. I've always gone out walking when I need to think. So the book is really a call to not book another meeting room at the Oxford or Watford Hilton for your strategy day, but take it outside. Um, And hopefully also a whole load of methodology to help people do that. But if I had one call, it's that, yeah, the magic's not going to happen in, you know, sat in another management training session or sitting around a big table with some bits of paper and colored pens. Uh, You know, you still need to do that afterwards. I'm not saying you could, you know, well, I try to take as much work as I can outside, but you know, I'm not saying you can take it all, but I want it to be taken seriously that it is actually deep work and not bunking off. It's not team building. It's not your away days, although I love them too, but there's actually, there's actually deep work to be done outside. 
you know, I there's so, there's so many bits there, and and the point that you mentioned about default mode and fascinating research about literally the cadence, like the optimum cadence for uh, for getting into that state. So don't walk too quickly, don't walk too slowly, and you know, there's there's tons of research out there on, on all of this stuff. But also that point that yeah, it's not a one off. You can't tick this box and then go back to it next year. That it's a that that it's like a kind of continual process. Um, and I think also towards the end of your book, you almost talk about what the cadence of that is. If you were to suggest to teams, you know, how often they get outside, in what ways you've, you've kind of thought quite deeply around what that looks like as well. Yes, I've tried to, because I've tried to make it you know, as easy and accessible as possible. And, and it is a, there's a Venn diagram somewhere of, you know, the personal benefits to doing it and the team and the work benefits and and it's all a bit messy because it's it's sort of accepting that you know there isn't really work and home life you know it's all life yeah and mm. and you know we all try to put up these barriers and i think that's right that you don't necessarily sit at your computer on a sunday and do that stuff but your brain's still doing stuff and so you once you accept that there's ways to help organize that and and help you know pick out those ideas or at least help your thinking be clear so that's sort of the framework that i tried to come up with and again not all my work but based on some work by um michael easter and some academics in america on um trying to work out your your equivalent of your five a day if you like so my summary of that was this 23 three rule which is you know, 20 minutes walking in nature every day. And the and the, that's easy for everyone, yeah, and you do it on your commute. And when I say nature, it doesn't, it, you know, it, it just needs to be outdoors somewhere. You don't have to go to the deepest wilds. And and, and again, the science is in the book. You, the really important thing is that that is not on your phone or on your tech, if you want to get the maximum benefit out of it. So that's easy, yeah. Twenty minutes a day, and we can do that. Whether we've got a dog, we're walking to work, we extend our lunch break to get a sandwich from a further shop, and there's some real benefits to that. Uh, the next, the three is um, a three-hour walk or being in nature every two weeks, um, and that's, I think, important. It's something I, I run an outdoor group. Um, a networking group which we've been running for two years and it's based on that very thing that every Friday morning every other week there's a walk and um, I think if you ask everyone in that group that sort of walking talking that you get and benefits you get and some people you know talk about it really simply that you know the work they do on a Friday afternoon is the best work they do all week um, you know I don't tend to work on a Friday afternoon after I've done it but <laughs> but I think that's powerful and then the one I think makes a real difference and where the science properly stacks up is the three days a quarter. There's some great science in the book, and oh, you've read it, and uh, one by um, Ruth Ashley, an American, another American academic, about the, what, the huge benefits that come on day three of being outside somewhere. So this is the sort of, I guess, the equivalent of the company retreat uh, of the strategy away time or what you would have used for team building. And there's team building built into being as a group outside somewhere doing something. Um, so that's the real one I want people to really do, <laughs> but I understand there's steps in between. And I think if people viewed the three hours every couple of weeks as, you know, once a month, 
you know company get together on a strategy day as well um yeah i think that would work i think it's you know five a day isn't that you have to eat those five every day it's you know it's the principle of building up and eating more and i think that's the same you know if you accept there's some real benefit to doing it then try and build it into some pattern as opposed to uh you know it's a bit like medicine isn't it you know it's much better to prevent yourself getting ill and i think the same's right for your brain you know if you if you practice things well you won't yeah you won't get ill or you won't not have ideas and your brain won't get muddled i i i love so much there i mean i'm i listen to another podcast which i really love called um eat sleep work repeat i don't know if you ever listened to that and um Bree Stacey there was talking to Jeremy Utley from the D school um, at Stanford and he talks again. So we're obsessed with productivity and we're, we're obsessed with like the idea that's going to unlock the next business revenue stream or, you know, a shift in ed tech or whatever it is. But actually, it's not about having the best idea. It's about generating a number of ideas. And from that number of ideas, you'll get to your quality idea. Yeah, so this there was that was that on his book Idea Flow. I think yeah, I think that's I think, what it's uh, called. Yeah, he's got a new book out called Idea Flow, which is yeah, it's not specifically about the outdoors, but absolutely just about find ways to generate lots of ideas. That you've got to have me- you've got to have mechanisms to put them through the ringer. Well, um, and what what I love about what you've said before is you know that in this time of um, economic concern and companies thinking about their cost base, I think you said before that going outside is like a very cost effective way of um, generating innovation, of coming up with new ideas, of unlocking problems. And I, I just think that's really powerful. Like you said, you know, it doesn't, everyone can access that in some shape or form. So um, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, and I can, you know, as a practitioner, as opposed to, I guess, the author, you know, testimonials are always best. I'm not going to read you testimonials, but, you know, everyone I've ever properly done this with does it again. And my best customer, who was also my first proper paying customer for this, specifically this work, you know, it's now absolutely embedded as the way they do this type of thinking and work together, you know, so they're just, we're constantly booking the next trip and they still get to do fun stuff like you know change where that is and the exact format time of year um but yes ed Ed, who's the ceo of that as a young tech company fast growing and having to innovate you know absolutely talks about return on investment and he's got no doubt that you know this delivers on absolutely on return on investment better than most other things they do and i think to sort of tease out that point a bit more i've put here um you know, this is something I'm a bit obsessed about. So I think when I think about the podcast and starting seven years ago, and this is a sort of sector analogy with EdTech, but probably parallels could be drawn to um, other uh, sectors because actually it's about the effect of the internet and how the internet has matured and our understanding of where the limits of that is um, or, the, you know, where those limits lie. So I put here, um, previously, I think the EdTech world has been culpable of talking about technology as if it existed separately to organisational culture and people. And one of the moments I love in the book is when you talk about combining the duality of our traditional work practices with all of their productivity benefits and our innate sense of adventurousness in order to unlock the creativity lurking within all of us. Um, 
And so this makes me think about, you know, when you come up with the idea for this new business when you're on holiday or out, out of your normal environment. And and so I'm I'm really interested to know from you whether you think there's sort of an acceptance um, culturally within organisations that um, this playfulness, this creativity, this um, allowing space for new ideas in different ways, whether that is becoming more accepted. And I suppose for the for the listeners of this podcast, that might be people like learning and development specialists within organisations or um, how that's evolved, I suppose. Yeah, well, I think in that wider learning and development and especially coaching space, there is a there is absolutely a growing sense of the use of the outdoors as a place. Um, and I, I, I take that as a big positive. I think, you know, I'm, my bit of that is actually making it, of all the lovely benefits, also making it a, a useful place to do stuff. And I think, that's less accepted so i think there's quite a lot of movement that for health well-being employee well-being all of that i think that's growing quite rapidly i don't think we're there quite yet on this is actually a really useful space from a work so that 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 is this work is this and don't get me wrong i'm a, I'm a big fan of the increase in focus on in, on in, on well-being in the workplace and sort of the but if you put your sort of future of work hat on and there's a there's a quote in my book I won't quote it right from uh Michael DePaula who does similar work as me up in um uh the northwest um but, you know he says something like you know we're going to look back on these work practices like we now look back on the Victorian you know workhouses you know locked in our little boxes looking at screens so to your point yes I think there's a movement to, to use the outdoors more for certain things but i'm not sure it's quite flicked into it's actually work and i think that's where i'm trying to change it and um absolutely you know the same processes that allow you to you know view things differently come up with alternative perspectives come up with imagined futures are all absolutely part of learning development just as they are part of you know for the role of innovation you know uh, you know i suspect we talked about how slowly, you know, education from a, you know, a, a school or or institutional point of view changes. But yeah, you know, I'm sure I could write a book if someone would let me on on the use of this in education directly. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily oh, it's a sunny day. We're going to read our read our books on the on on the grass. You know. <laughs> well, and, and and what's super interesting about that, I had this conversation with um, someone previously and she worked, uh, I think it was in early years. So she was, no, it was in primary school. So she was um, uh, a special educational needs in primary school. And her view was we do intuitively understand the role of, of play and in educational practices. And we're really good at it at primary school level, early years primary school. And then slowly it just sort of dwindles away and until the point when, as adults, we've kind of lost our ability to understand and that play is an acceptable form of um, of being, especially in relation to learning and development. Um, we always ask guests for like um, books or uh, people or projects or other recommendations 
that you know you absolutely love and rave about that you'd like to share with our listeners as well yeah well book wise obviously i've read lots recently <laughs> in the last two years because i reference a lot of it. The, the standout ones for me are um this one which is called the adventure revolution by belinda kirk um so belinda is a proper explorer herself and runs a thing called um explorers connect it's a sort of place that you know someone will put a call out saying team members wanted to you know um you know, walk across patagonia in the middle of the winter or whatever you know so it's that but actually her call is about it's very related to my book in terms of how adventure is you know hardwired into us as something that we want to do a bit like play and we sort of lose our adventurous side but also the interesting thing is there looks very much that adventure isn't necessarily about six months in the patagonian wilderness you know it's about just doing something new and different and what that does to your brain and um, that resonated a lot because even when i take walks i i do quite a lot of work in morocco i love morocco but actually just the fact of being in a slightly different culture changes the way people think and behave and so it's sort of related to that it's just so it's not necessarily has to be super adventurous so that one's that one's resonated um really well with me my other favorite one is called the philosophy of walking which is i referenced a few times in the book by frederick gross so that just you know that's a sort of backbone of my book is you know that great thinkers throughout history have absolutely known and used this yeah what i do yeah it's not it's, it, as you said it's you know it's sort of it's sort of nothing new we all know it and a bit like you're you're saying about play yeah we we sort of we sort of stop playing lego with our friends we stop going and we stop going and you know discovering you know bits of hillsides near our houses all the stuff we did with kids and sort of realizing that that's that's to be human and actually we've been we've had it trained out of us <laughs> um but some great thinkers you know and philosophers and writers you know maybe just had the freedom whether that was mentally or practically to to carry on doing it so i found that very enlightening have you ever had um issues um just thinking of diverse teams accessibility where you've worked with teams where you know perhaps one of the team members can't can't come along for physical reasons or yeah, it is an issue, and I absolutely accept it. I've, I, th- I think the type of work I do means that it's sort of self-selecting for some ability. But I quite often have to design trips where it's not hard walking all day, but it's it's being inside. There's a few sort of nature camp type places that I use for my work, where we're more sedentary, but we're in nature and we're taking short walks. Um, so, you know, a lot of the science as you've read is you know it's not about um bagging peaks or conquering mountains it's it's about moving in nature so you know i think to some degree that's accessible to most people um so it, it does come up and i you know but i think if you if you view it that way you know i definitely i use walking because there's real science behind it but yeah you don't have to be walking for you know eight hours up a mountain it can be a 20 20 minute stroll through a wood I have a very good cautionary tale, um, Gary, that um, underpins your recommendation that people leave their phones at home, and you're going to you're going to laugh at this. And I'm going to send you an invoice afterwards. 
<laughs> so, so I was reading your book and um, in a fit of enthusiasm, so I live on the edge of Dartmoor National Park and it was absolutely peeing it down as it does. And um, I said, like, right, we, I need to go out now. I'm going to go for a walk around the block, even though it's raining. So I messaged my friend and we meet up and we go for a walk and I'm I'm always stealing my husband's clothes. Um, so I nicked his coat and I put my phone in the inside pocket <laughs> And it was in an inside pocket, an iPhone, other phones are available, and mm-hmm. um, and got back after an hour and completely killed it. <laughs> so Oh, just got soaked. Yeah, so that was £579. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I said to my husband, I was like, oh, yeah, it does say in the book, actually, you're meant to leave your phone at home. But, um, yeah, so... <laughs> well, I, I understand leaving it at home is one thing, not, not you know, having it off, there's... Um... Have you, um, there's a new program out with um, Chris Hemsworth for called Limitless, and um, it, the, the premise of the series is about longevity. But one of the episodes is about um, he goes on a, a memory walk in um, the outback in Australia, and um, not only do they not have tech, but they have to study the maps before they go and then commit them to memory and 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 follow them or try and follow them in the in the landscape so it's tapping into this bit i was talking about earlier um obviously you've got to watch it with a pinch of salt because of the film crew that was with them as well whenever there's a you know major celeb doing a you know a wilderness trip um but um but yeah i think there's some there there are absolutely benefits to not having your tech but um i do understand taking it out um (laughs) <laughs> you probably didn't need it. You probably didn't need it to walk around the block, though, did you? Or in your local area? <laughs> Weirdly, as well, yeah. I quite often take my phone because whilst I'm walking, I get a ton of these ideas, and I want to like use my notes app to jot everything down, or kind of yeah, I sort of use it to document them, and 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 th- like people come up and think, oh, I need to connect with them, and and so yeah, maybe you're not getting uncovering those deep seated things but but it all even at a surface level it just generates so much going on that i yeah. uh i love to kind of capture that straight away yeah and there's there's no hard and fast rules there's degrees to everything isn't there there's definitely yeah definitely benefits to not having it at all um but if not yeah as long as it's not blipping away beeping every time you've got a message i don't think i've had yeah. notifications on for several years um so yeah. not a fan um and and if people want to find your book, so it's called The Creativity Factor. Um, yeah. I'm guessing available in all good bookshops. Yeah, pretty much everywhere, online and physically, and uh, in audio and Kindle. Not read by me, but um, I've been I've been told that Nathaniel, who read it, has a very soothing voice. Okay, well, I look forward to listening to that. <laughs> and um, and and Gary, how about if people want to follow you online? Do you have uh, are you a Twitter fan? Are you on LinkedIn? What's the best way there? Uh, LinkedIn for me. My name is, luckily, you're either going to find me or an ex-international cricketer. <laughs> I'm not the cricketer, although I wish I had been. Maybe. Amazing. Amazing. lifetime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gary. And yeah, you know, your current business. Earswitch, yes. Looking forward to finding out all things about Earswitch and whatever comes next, because it feels like every five or ten years or so you're 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 um putting out some other amazing um startup so we'll keep our eyes peeled on that and um thank you very much for your time today as well it's been a pleasure 
Thanks so much to Gary and thanks for listening. If you fancy dropping us a note on Twitter, we are at Podcast EdTech. Hope to catch some of you in 3D this year. Take care.